This is the Mess It Up Podcast, where we take your mess and turn it into a message. And now, here's the Bowtie Guy. Hey, everybody. It is the Bowtie Guy one more time with the Mess It Up Podcast. We are here, and it's June. Welcome to June, people. I can't believe that we're already in June. Well, I can because it feels very warm. My wife is excited. We took a walk the other day, and she said, wow, I love these long days. I'm a winter guy. I like the long nights, uh, but uh, she's about to get sad because pretty soon, in a couple weeks, June 21st is coming here, and we're going to start dialing that sun back and, uh, and getting into some cooler temperatures. So anyhow, it is June today. And we're here once again with your show. Uh, our word of the week this week is tantrum. And I'm sure that you guys have all uh, experienced a tantrum in your life. But uh, a tantrum, if, if we look at Google, it says a display of bad temper. Um, and I always think of myself having a fit when, um, when my team doesn't do well. I'm apt to throw a bit of a temper tantrum. Uh, so if you can use that word in your sentences this week, give yourself 10 bonus points because, you know, we all love the bonus points. I will be asking you for your bonus points soon for a contest, so be adding those up. We're going to do bonus points for the, uh, the season of spring. So uh, on June 20th, that's going to be your last one. So be adding up your, your bonus points so you can have a good total for me because someone is going to win some coffee. Um, today we are having a podcast with a guest and as you know, this guest couldn't be here if you guys weren't here. So you need to tell people about the show. Pass it along in your family text or whatever. And if you want to support us financially, it's just as easy as sending a text. Text the word MUM, M-U-M, to 760-WALLS-CA. That's 925-5722. And that will send you to our text to give site and get you all hooked up. You get your tax uh, receipts at the end of the year, all is good. It is tax deductible because we are a nonprofit. So tell your friends, tell everybody, tell that guy who drives a really nice car uh, on your street, hey, I know where you can get a good tax write-off for that car. Um, and, uh, and he can donate the car to us or he can just give to the show. So uh, we love all of our supporters. Thank you so much for making this possible. And now, on with the show. I've got a, uh, a friend here on the show for the first time, but it won't be the last time because we've already got ideas for doing multiple shows. Uh, but uh, I want to introduce you to Brian. Hello there, Paul. How you doing? Uh, it's a beautiful morning out here. You mentioned that we're heading right into June, but we've been given a brief reprieve here in Bakersfield, and it's gorgeous outside. Oh, I love the reprieve. I didn't have my cooler on last night. Uh, it was like in the, the low 70s, high 60s last night in Ridgecrest. I was like, oh, my gosh, this doesn't happen, uh, and it will stop happening soon. I know there's going to be days when it's 99 at midnight, but, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm loving the, uh, the, the respringing of spring, as it were. Uh, so, Brian, um, tell us your story. Absolutely, Paul. Uh, well, a teeny bit of background about myself. Uh, it's so often that whenever we find out about a person's recovery story that we hear about a person who's had so many travails through their life. You know, they started low and they stayed low and even got lower. But uh, my life actually has kind of a rosy opening all the way through it, you know. I was a middle-class suburban kid. You know, I had parents who were sober and accomplished both of them very well-educated professionals in their various fields. 
I myself had a very good education growing up, some of the best public schools you can find, and even went to a uh, University of California. I went to UC Riverside to get a bachelor's degree. Oh, my so, goodness. Yeah. I, the whole thing, educated, articulate, uh, good at interacting with people, the kind of person that when I actually set to concentrating on something, I could accomplish great things with it. And my story starts to fiddle and fizzle a little bit when I started having to really deal with certain emotional issues I've had. And that really is what led me down the path to the particular drugs I invested my time in, is that I found myself here and there questioning things, mired in depression here and again. And where I started to falter and really get an issue is that as I began to compete with apathy and depression in my life, instead of finding healthy ways to cope with it, you know, therapy, just rap sessions with friends, speaking with, you know, a trusted person in my life, perhaps a professor, an advisor, whomever it might be, I discovered the joys of marijuana. Mm. And what I enjoyed about it is that in real life outside, I am a very big fellow. I'm rather tall. I'm rather stout. And with that comes a certain level of resistance to your garden variety alcohol. So I never found myself overly invested or alcoholic with all these drinks and such. But once I discovered the efficacy of marijuana, the sheer ease with which I could numb myself out completely with just a little bit of a smoke, I pitched headlong into it the first time back in 2005 for a couple of years. And I found myself abandoning. I had gone on to start grad school, actually, after I graduated my bachelor's. Uh, headed towards a uh, master's in education. And when I started finding myself intimidated by all the work I was going to have to do, intimidated by the idea that I was entering really the professional stage of my life, because, you know, at 22, when you're going straight forward into a master's degree, when you're going into education, when you're going into all these things, your adolescence is over. At a certain point, you have to be the adult, especially when you're going into something like education. And for someone like me who'd had, like I said, a really blessed existence up to that point, and I had to work hard here and there, you know, for my education, for a couple of jobs I had through the way, you know, these simple jobs, working, you know, the taco line at Del Taco or delivering pizzas for a summer, you know, definitely here in Bakersfield, that's something that could be a bit of a challenge. But it's the most I really ever had to do. And when I found myself head up against these severely adult challenges and really having to try and confront those moments, the immensity of it just overwhelmed whatever little bit of resistance I had left. And that's when I found myself faltering to the point where I absolutely stopped trying when it came to education, fell out of grad school, found myself coming back to Bakersfield, back to delivering pizza, and for goodness, better part of a couple of years, it was just smoking pot and delivering pizzas. Absolutely nothing going on for me. And how did that? It's fun. How did that feel oh. to you, Brian, when you were doing that? Did were you processing that as uh, a give up, a failure, or just it is what it is, and you were too high to care? Uh, it, it definitely that last particular uh, comment. I'm sure 
part of my mind, especially in the moments when I did find myself sober, you know, first thing in the morning, maybe right when I'm going off to work, in those little sober moments, every now and then, and this is something that would happen later on, too, when I found myself altering even deeper, is every now and then I would ask myself, what's the plan, Bri? Mm. What's your next step? What's, what results are you shooting for with this? I would, I would ask myself. Because as much as I was neck deep in my addiction and just seeking and existing in that numbness as much as possible, I still had the same brain in my head. I had the same brain that managed to get myself stay like a like a three point seven GPA average staying in the honors program at a UC. That same brain was still in my skull. It was just tightly wrapped in this just prickly wool blanket of depression and numbness. And I didn't have an answer for it. I had no plan. I had no results I was looking for. All I knew was is that I couldn't stand feeling what I was feeling, and that sticky sweet herb kept me from having to feel that. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, my first half, just really half-stepped, half-tried, half-baked way of attaining some level of sobriety came around. When you can't say was... half-baked way of attaining sobriety. <laughs> well, that's the trick of it is that I was put in a position where I had a chance to get what would have been technic- – it would have been a seasonal job, but it would have been a better job than just pizza delivery, doing open enrollment for Kaiser, especially as a bilingual person because I speak Spanish. Oh. Uh, I had the opportunity to go and be part of the open enrollment team working with people in Bakersfield and Kern County, which uh, coming from a family with a lot of medical involvement, medical professionals, this is a very important thing that happens because it helps keep people healthy and safe. And it would have been a good job for me, get away from pizza delivery, do something that's more constructive. And I happened to be one of the first group of the seasonal workers they were going to be hiring for this that had to do a drug test. Oh, wow. And given as it was a family member who had put me in touch with these people all together, uh, once I definitely failed that drug test because there was no way I was ever going to be clean and the amount of time I had to get ready for all this, especially because, you know, marijuana, minimum of 30 days, and being a uh, rather stout fellow much longer, given how it's fat-soluble. And it came out. It came out about my ridiculously constant heavy use, and I was given a chance to go and try and do some outpatient rehab with Kaiser. And I kind of limped my way through it, and I said a lot of the right things. And, you know, I checked some boxes and paperwork, and it's all voluntary. So it's not like I was being kept in a hospital. It's not like I had some legal requirements to me. I just, I went through the motions and I found, I, I, I managed to get myself sober for a bit uh, with a little bit of guidance and help, or at the very least, I found an opportunity to have an excuse to stop using and go get a better job, which eventually I did. Uh, and that was the kind of way I limped myself into it. And in the meantime, I found myself working in the oil fields for a little while. And I found myself substituting. It's like what a roughneck or doing something oh, uh, technical? Uh, uh, it, actually, it was more the technical side of working with production rigs. I did wellhead tubing scanning. Now, that's an explanation that I could fill probably 15 minutes of your show with, but I won't. But basically, it's a technical job uh, involved in a messy and very hands on industry, which is very, just on site, on active oil wells doing 
uh, tubing, pulling, and such. And it gave me a reason to stay sober because if you work in the oil fields of California, you've got to be clean for everything. But drinking is a very common thing that you get out there in the oil fields. And I found myself substituting what I used to get for marijuana with drinking a bunch whenever I had the opportunity. Never on the job, rarely during a weekday. But on the weekends and such, it was party time. Okay. Uh, and what eventually happened that kind of threw things off for me for quite a bit is I uh, had a spinal injury as the result of degenerative disc disease. So after about two and a half years in the oil fields, all of a sudden I had two discs herniate in my lower back. And this is an overtime thing. This isn't an injury on the job. I didn't get hit by a big pipe. I didn't get pinched between a couple of vehicles. It was just a degradatory thing over time. And then all of a sudden, these two discs just gave up. And I pretty much got pinched off right at the base of my lumbar, kinked like a hose, useless from the waist down for a few days. And after surgery and a bunch of complications that involved a great big blood clot in my lungs that nearly killed me and then sepsis in my surgery site that nearly killed me and goodness I couldn't tell you how many total weeks of rehab to learn how to walk again and function again I found myself at 26 uh, in a walker with a permanent giant hole in my lower back from where they had to do everything and fix everything trying to learn how to walk and function again living back at home with my folks after quite a few years doing my own thing. And in the midst of all of this, the stress of nearly dying several times, the kind of hopeless dreariness that came from about three months total in the hospital, shedding over 65 pounds, pale as a fish belly, and all those things, I found myself sitting there in a walker at home during the day trying to figure out what I was going to do with my life, and it dawned on me, I'm never going to go, go work back in the oil fields because I'm never going to have at least a cane to walk with because of the numbness in my feet. Uh, I thought, well, if I'm never going to work in the oil fields again, you know what that means, don't you, Bri? <laughs> yeah. And I rediscovered my friend Mary Jane. And that began a three-year odyssey of being smoked to the gills as often as I could manage, lying about it with my family especially because my folks, sure as Spitfire, did not want me back on it because they remembered the loosey-goosey part of my life where I was smoked out all the time too, delivering pizzas and accomplishing very little. But uh, there I was again, behind the backs of just about everybody I knew, staying high, staying smoked out, trying very little to do just about anything except the occasional physical therapy session. Even that started to wane, something I knew I wanted to accomplish. I knew I needed to accomplish if I was ever going to get back behind the wheel of a car again, that the level of control is going to be necessary. And even that started to fall to the wayside. I'd have little moments where I'd clear myself out for a few days here and there and stay sober enough to work on some medical issue or another, keep up with a couple of appointments just to make sure that I didn't get any worse. But uh, it wasn't too long until I found myself 
in a position where I had to start doing something. Because, like I said, my folks, accomplished and educated, very aware of what I'm capable of intellectually, even with my physical difficulties at that point, and being urged to go and do something, you know. And at that point it was, hey, you know, you're disabled, but you could still do things like translation and uh, interpretation. Because I mentioned I'm bilingual, and you can get certification to do that in the courts, in hospitals. This is something that would be well within my abilities, even with my disability. And it's like, okay, they've got a program down at uh, Cal State LA. This is something you can do. It's once a week on Saturdays for a few hours, and then in a year or so, you take a test, you're good, you're done. I did about two sessions of that class, and I immediately decided it was too much effort. And I started to lie about going. <laughs> and in the meantime, I also was running around, spending too much time out on weekdays and such. And my poor folks, they're both working full time, doing their professional deals. And the dogs would whine, missing me. And I might make some noise coming home and stir up the dogs, et cetera. And I was told, you know, stop fooling around on the day, weekdays and be honest about what it is and who you're doing it with. And eventually I wore out my welcome at my folks' place and ended up living with my grandma and trying to take care of her and trying to figure out how I was going to run my whole game. And grandma ended up trusting me with her debit card to help go do shopping and pay bills and take her out to meals and such. And uh, I found myself subsidizing my marijuana habit and my entertainment habit with grandma's social security and dividends from grandpa's investment that helped keep her comfortable. He had already passed yeah. at this point. Yeah, so for the better part of two years, my life was take care of grandma as much as it was she needed. You know, do some shopping, take her out to meals, take her to doctor appointments, make sure the TV was on or playing a DVD for her before I would leave for the day. And in all the free time I could manage, stay smoked out of my brain, go eat too much food, maybe go see a movie, hang out with people that didn't need to be hung out with, uh, some unsavory characters here and there. Were you, and, were you slowly going down the worse and worse people uh, route, or was it the same people that you originally started uh, hanging out with? Oh, no, definitely worse. Uh, not necessarily criminals and the such, but I found myself spending time with uh, occasionally uh, in trade with uh, escorts and then also eventually just as a local connect for escorts who might be passing through town. I might not want to go and engage their particular services, but they knew I had a medical card and I would find myself picking up for escorts and hanging out and smoking with them, talking about work and what they were doing and you get to interact with some less than savory characters when you're dealing with people who already work outside the regular law. And those are the people I was, uh, if I wasn't spending time with my like good, like decent, regular old fashioned everyday friends, I'd be spending time with uh, spending time with people like them. And with your, your medical card, did that come as a result of the injury that you got, you know, the, you know, legitimate marijuana card or did you go and get the traditional, hey, I don't feel good from Dr. Feelgood card? <laughs> well, that's the funny thing is that the big hole in my lower back made it real easy to get that card, but I didn't mm -hmm. get it from my MD. 
it was, and as far as I know, still is very simple to walk into any uh, 420 evaluation style location and say, I get migraines. It's hard for me to sleep. Sometimes I'm anxious. For me, it was just easier to walk into one of those same places and say, I've got a giant hole in my spine and marijuana makes me feel better about it. And they said, sure, $60, stamped my card, boom, ready to go. Okay. Yeah. And, and <laughs> why is it that you did that way instead of your medical doctor? Well, the trick of it is, is that I was familiar enough with the process of going to one of these evaluation places because of friends I'd had in the past that it was just easier to walk in, do one over-the-computer, like, Skype interview with some doctor somewhere else in California, yeah, and then get my card and be done with it. If you tried to do it through your regular MD, You've got to make appointments. It takes time. They've got to sign off for it. And most actual MDs, when you're people that you deal with, especially your general practitioner, your PCP, your primary care physician, they're going to ask you to try a dozen different things first before they'll say, okay, now we'll try marijuana. This isn't something like cancer where it's like, oh, uh, you want to avoid opioids and you have no appetite. So you need something that's a painkiller combined with something that will provide you with enough appetite to eat. Okay, marijuana is a solution for that. But the thing of it is, is that when it comes down to the truth of things, once I had my back surgery, my back didn't hurt anymore. Mm. That was one of the big lies through all of it. It's like, oh, I've got this hole in my back. If you've got a great big, like, taco-shaped and sized hole at your lower back, you can tell people it hurts, and they will believe you. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah, I imagine that's true. Absolutely. And that was the trick of it is that uh, I've always been fairly articulate and I've always had a very good poker face. And thanks to my involvement in speech and debate through high school and lots of public speaking is that through all this, as all this was happening with my grandparents, with my parents, even with my friends, because I even lied to my friends about going to this translation certification course. You know, I lied to literally everybody in my life about it because if you want to be a good liar, if you want to be a good actor, if you want to keep people off your case when you're running around being foolish like I was, you have to commit to it. And I committed to it. I committed to the whole cover because in the meantime, I was getting what I wanted. And what I wanted was the beautiful green-tinted laziness and numbness that came with smoking as soon as I got up, and smoking all the way to bed in the evening, whatever time that ended up being. Yeah. 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 Um, well, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to push pause here on this because uh, I know that we're going to get to something better. And that happens to be the song of the week that I've chosen for this week. This is, uh, uh, we're going to give you about 90 seconds from Torn Wells and Blanca, uh, the song, something better. So here they are for 90 seconds. We'll be back on the other side to talk about that and to find out what something better Brian had. Uh, in his life. So here's Torn Wells and Blanca with something better.
All right, there you go, Torin Wells and Blanca. Uh, interesting thing about Torin Wells, uh, Torin Wells was kind of discovered by, um, well, I don't know who discovered him, but he did his first public music stuff on a tour with, he opened for Mariah Carey and Lionel Richie. They let him come out and do like 15 minutes before their show several years ago when they did a tour together, and that's where he uh, got his rise to fame. So something better. Brian, what do you think about that song? What stood out there? Well, I definitely felt with it because as I was not just in my addiction and when I was running around, but in other times in my life when I was doing poorly, there's always that idea in the back of your head, especially in those moments of soberness in the midst of it, that I know there's something better out there. My life has been better. Mm -hmm. And I just, you know, part of your heart, part of your mind knows if I could find a way out, of what's dragging me down, there's something better out there for me. And just to yes. hear that put to such, you know, really beautiful music and a beautiful voice, it's like, yeah, you're right, Blanca. There is something better. <laughs> yeah, and I like it, you know, in the, one of the lines in, this is like a pre-chorus uh, here, it says, with you a new story begins. I like the fact that our story mm -hmm. can begin. And and it, it's a new story, and, and we don't throw away the old story because the old story, you know, we know. I mean, come on, we turn the mess into a message. We know that that old story builds whatever we are. Whatever the mess is that we've built, we can leverage it and, and, and use it as a fulcrum to lift ourselves and other people higher. So, uh, so I do like that idea as well. So Brian, Every superhero how, has a tragic backstory. You know, that is true. That is true. Uh, what, what is your superpower? <laughs> what is your superpower, uh, Brian? Well, if I wanted to, uh, if I wanted to tweak my own ego a little bit, I'd say my superpower is uh, uh, articulateness. <laughs> oh, articulateness! Uh, just, just being able to speak to people. But if I, if I had to really dwell into it and think about what it is I could produce, is I've been blessed with this, with a high degree of uh, insight and if I'm able to interact with someone for just long enough, I could kind of learn the language they speak and maybe even get a little peek at what it is they're feeling about themselves. And when you're able to combine those two things, if I can get a peek at someone inside, I can use my words to kind of share with them what I'm able to see, their heart, their feelings. And when you can show someone themselves, because it's so hard to look right at ourselves, but if you can show someone themselves, you can you can give them all kinds of great gifts. You can help them realize great things about themselves or potential. And getting to do that for people, it's it's a real brush. Yeah, yeah. I think my superpower, I can eat donuts. Uh, put a plate of donuts in front of me. You will see a superpower come out of this guy like nobody's business. Also, bad like David dad Copperfield. I've been told. Yes, yes. David Copperfield. I like Donut Copperfield. That's going to... <laughs> I'm going to start using it as my new moniker. Forget the bow tie guy. I am Donut Copperfield. There you go. You said uh, dad right. jokes. I'm going to give you one real quick. I'm just okay, going to interrupt it. my own story. When does a joke become a dad joke? Uh, I when don't know. <laughs> when it becomes apparent. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> Not That's bad. all yours, Not sir. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I, I find myself a little bit uh, wary of stairs because they're always up to something. Hey, yo. <laughs> yeah. All right. So now uh, let's get back into you, Brian. Uh, so when we left you, you were uh, wasted. 
and wasting away. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was it that was making it so you wanted to keep on coming back to that numbing? What were you trying to numb? Well, I, I mentioned before something I had struggled with now and again was depression. And it had various sources through my life, you know, uh, being unsure of myself, being met with challenges I had no idea how to cope with. And then at that stage in my life, between 2010 and 2013, all of a sudden I had this physical disability. I managed to get myself to the point back up to a cane, but I was, I'm always going to be disabled now for the rest of my life, you know, terrible balance, use the cane. I can drive a car, but there's so much. And at that point, at the age of 26, there was so much I was just not going to be able to do anymore. It was mm-hmm. no longer an option. You combine that with some of the issues I was already dealing with, you know, that lack of certainty over the world in general, and the apathy I began to feel towards even trying to fix it. And the apathy and depression, it was like, you know what? I don't like to feel this depression because it's an active sadness. It's an active, destructive sadness. And faced with the option of either dealing with that active, intense sadness and that absolute lack of certainty, I decided that numbness is preferable Mm. to dealing with that active sadness. And so I opted for the numbness, and marijuana provided that in spades. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, So how did you finally reel yourself out of this? Well, I had a little bit of help, and it came from a very unlikely source. Uh, I mentioned I was living with my grandmother at the time, who was on her own after my grandfather had passed away a couple of years before. Um, And I have, this is my mother's mother, by the way, and my mother has two sisters, an older sister and a younger sister. And these two 'er ne'er-do-wells have their own stories where they struggled with a lot of issues, including addiction in different forms, but I won't tell their stories. But the fact of the matter was is that they were attempting to get my grandmother to move to be closer to either of them so that they could get access to a bit of her monthly funding to help supplement their own lives because they found themselves either not working or unsuccessful. And they figured if she was closer, they'd have some access. They were going to take your stash? Exactly. And the fact of the matter is, is that being that I was with her every day, actively taking care of her, uh, she was more likely to listen to me when it came to about them and why they were so eager to try to get her to move closer to them, the distant places in California. Um, And I prevented it until the older aunt, who was a little bit more crafty than the younger aunt, finally invested enough time and effort into proving that I had been living off my grandmother and sponging cash for my, uh, for my addiction and managed to show up and oust me with the backup of her younger sister and some of their family. So these people who had their own agenda finally put out the effort necessary to reveal what I was up to. And it was honestly a relief because, You don't get the kind of empathy I have, at least ending up feeling a little guilty for using mm-hmm. the people in your life, especially those who love you. And to have my misdeeds, or at the very least, my addiction and the use of my mother's, my grandmother's uh, cash to fund that addiction, 
I was like, oh, by the way, I also have been lying about attending the certification class. Uh, and I just would run off and hide at a Starbucks uh, in the grapevine for a few hours every Saturday so nobody would see me in town blow my cover and then come back in the afternoon. Uh, so I was lying about that. I uh, also have to my vows in marijuana, and I absolutely uh, need to go somewhere where I can get some kind of help. So sometimes the... Uh, Sometimes the uh, the enemy can lead you to better things. I'm blanking on a handful of the different tribes that God used to teach his Israelites a few lessons over the years. <laughs> this uh, definitely you know, some Canaanites getting me back on track. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it, when, when I was in the midst of my addiction and lying, you know, I had uh, keeping all the lies together affected my speech. I developed a stammer in my speech and I was working at a, a public school at the time. So I was actually talking to the school speech pathologist trying to figure out what was going on with my speech because I couldn't come up with words. And I'm very much a words guy. I, I love words. I talk a lot. I write books. Mm -hmm. I, you know, words are my thing. And to not have them was very disorienting. And I found when I was sitting in uh, the holding tank down at uh, Central Jail in downtown Bakersfield, all of a sudden I was able to speak now because all my secrets weren't having to be told anymore. They were out and all of a sudden I, I realized and I, I was able to put together later, oh, that speech impediment was because of the stress of keeping all those secrets. Did you have any uh, iterations of weirdness going on because of the speech or because of the, the secrets that then disappeared when your secret came out? Thinking back on it, uh, there was definitely a certain mania, a level of near hyperactivity when I would be interacting with people and acting real enthusiastic about the stuff I was supposed to be enthusiastic about. Right. Uh, for the people who knew me, they might think, okay, Brian's a little charged up. But for someone who experiences enthusiasm for this and that in his regular life, it might be like, all right, he's just a little extra, tries the best stuff today. But it was absolutely me putting on that facade of stuff's great. I'm yeah. charged up and ready to deal with stuff. Absolutely, absolutely just this crackly, like, veneer of false enthusiasm trying to throw people off the fact that I am just torn up all the time. <laughs> Right. Yeah. So what was the answer? Where did you where did you go when, when all this came out? And I'm guessing your aunt, did they uh, uh, indoctrinate your mother to come along on the charge to stop Brian from spending all this money? Or did they keep it from her because they wanted to have it and they needed to keep her a little separated? What actually ended up happening is there was already separation between my uh, aunts and my mother because they had – pretty much bailed on whatever responsibility they might have tried to give to help and care for their parents in their old age. And mm -hmm. my grandfather had even recognized that my mother was the last one left taking care of him and my grandmother as they were older. And so he'd actually altered his will to reflect mm -hmm. that. And so a couple of, so some of the grandkids would get a little money eventually, but my mother would get more of the actual base money and my two aunts were kind of not going to get anything because they bailed on my grandparents. And, my aunts did not bother trying to include my mother in all the work they were doing because 
they had very specific plans for they, what they were going to do to, quote, unquote, help grandma after. Yeah. And all they did to include my mother was once I admitted what I'd been up to, they made sure to tell her immediately, oh, by the way, Brian's been X, Y, Z. And right. my younger aunt was very much, oh, you think everything's so perfect, but here's the truth. There was definitely a little bit of animosity. <laughs> so they didn't care whether or not my mother was going to help them or any of it. They were happy to just inform my mother that I was terrible. Right. Um, and, but here's, here's where the solution started to come in. Uh, I was suddenly faced with, now my grandmother, this is something that I think is important. My grandmother immediately forgave me. She held nothing against me. There was no charges she was ever going to press. And she even said, don't go. I need you here with me because you helped take care of me. In the midst of all my addiction, I did help take care of her. You know, I, I made sure she had her meds every day. I made sure her TV was working right for her. I'd take her out when she wanted to go out. She loved her some soup salad and breadsticks at the all starting down the street. She liked oh, getting yeah. to go. And she even said, don't go. I forgive you. It doesn't matter. I need you here with me. But I was, I was fortunate enough at that moment to realize that this was an opportunity for me to try and fix stuff. But at the same time, it meant that very suddenly I was faced with definite homelessness. And for someone who's physically disabled, that could spell a lot of extra difficulties. And I found myself absolutely terrified to the point where maybe I was thinking to myself that stepping in front of a bus would be easier than trying to do anything. Mm -hmm. And so the last thing my aunts did for me, and probably just about the only thing they did in my, for me in my adult life, is I said, I found out where there is a crisis center at the local mental health facility where they will keep me from hurting myself for 24 hours. I need to go there now please take me. And they did. Mm. Uh, I found myself at Mary Kay Shell's crisis center here in Bakersfield uh, with absolutely no plan and no hope. And that's when a very nice nurse stepped in definitely as a tool from God and said, you know, you've told me a little bit of your story. And I told her a little bit about what had happened to me at the hospital, leaving to the point where I was disabled and such the complications I mentioned earlier, blood clot, sepsis, et cetera. And this woman, she's an RN, so the blood clot I had in my lungs, she recognized it as the kind of thing that a person doesn't normally survive. This was a big, awful, terrible, saddle pulmonary embolism that just kills people generally and even blew out part of my lung permanently. And then the sepsis that followed was very terrible. And she said to me, Brian, you know these things could have killed you. You've been raised by a nurse and a pharmacist. You understand medically what happened to you, and you know that you survived it despite the odds that, that it should have just killed you. She said, you have to know. You have to know that there's a reason you're still alive, and maybe it's time you found out what that reason was. Why he, as you mentioned, some things kept you alive. I think you know what it is, Brian. I was like, yeah, it's probably God, because I did believe. I, uh, I did believe in God. And she said, maybe it's time you found out what it is he had in mind for you. Hmm. And I took that advice, and it was through her help I was able to discover the men's program at the mission at Kern County. And... They let me stay a little bit extra time at the crisis center so that it would be the missions uh, program. They'd be open again on that Monday morning 
And they got me back over to that mission, and I was able to talk to them and enroll in their uh, men's recovery and rehab program. What what was that like um, for you? Uh, that's a big hurdle for a lot of people. Like, you know, yeah. I think in addiction we set up these barriers and like I'm not this bad because I don't do this thing. And so for a lot of us it's like I'm not that bad because – I haven't been to rehab. Uh, was that a was that a, a hurdle? The bigger the bigger hurdle for me in this whole situation was I had never. I mean, I'm going to pull that. The closest I'd ever come to trying to find some kind of reasoning or solution was my half-hearted attempt at outpatient rehab and therapy back in 2006. Mm -hmm. The hurdle for me was considering that there might be something I could do to save myself or at least get help saving myself. Like I was used to the idea that like this is going to be something I have to figure out and do for myself and solve for myself. And that idea was so intimidating that it very much contributed to these things. (laughs) Inebriate. Right. Like, yeah, wait, luck. eventually I'm going to have to fix all this? I am not down with that. I will stay high. Thank you very much. Yeah. And so that was the big hurdle for me is it's getting to the point where it's like not only – like you know you have to do something to fix yourself. That's one of the reasons so many people who are so neck deep in their addiction stay addicted is because that's really intimidating. Yeah. It's such a well, big it's, problem. It's just like uh, oh. finances. Uh, you know, and, I, I'll never pay these bills, so I might as well just use my credit card and buy something that'll make me happy. Mm-hmm, absolutely. It's like if you're never going to make it back to shore, why not swim further out to see what you can find? Yeah, yeah. You know? That's exactly <laughs> where I was. Yeah, and so, like honestly, like being at that point when all I had left, all I had left, was a backpack with my laptop and a couple items in it a trash bag full of clothes and the clothes on my back. That's all I had left at that point. And at that point, it's like all there really is left to do is either commit totally to ending what at that point was a miserable existence, or since I had nothing left except myself and my issues, well, there's a program right there with a lot of good <laughs> folks who are used to working on stuff with people. I certainly don't want to die. Otherwise, I probably would have done something about it by that point. I was keeping myself alive marginally, of course, at some points with how deep I was in things, but I was staying alive. And so that's where I was left. It's like, man, you're still alive. There's an option. There's a program where they help people with this stuff. Maybe now it's time. It's like, yeah, you know what? That's all right. Cool. Well, well, that's we're here. We're here. God gave you the chance to talk to a person who understands that they saved you for something. Now you've been given an opportunity to go and A, stay clean, B, get better, and C, maybe even find out what it is you can do to help people. So I went for it. Excellent. And how long was that program? <laughs> well, that's kind of a source of humor. Officially, the program is a 12-month program. Um, uh, I had a unique issue I had to get over in my experience in that uh, when you join the program, they're not expecting someone to come in clean because odds are you're within a certain number of days or however from your last usage. 
And the whole deal is, is that your first month of the program is something they call Genesis. And the goal is by the end of that one month, everything should be out of your system. You produce a clean test and you move into the men's house from the homeless shelter side. Now, I mentioned earlier, THC is fat soluble. I also mentioned I am a rather stout gentleman. I had spent three years infusing myself with top shelf mm. food. It took, they gave me a full 90 days in Genesis, the first part of the program, to keep testing me once a month to see whether or not I was clean yet. After 90 days, they said, we're going to have to put you out so you can try and see if you're going to get any cleaner. But they allowed me to stay at the mission because they had a spot for me doing paperwork at a desk job uh, through their shelter site, and I could stay in the shelter. And they allowed me to come back after 30 days. And it took the better part of six months for me to finally produce a reasonably, noticeably less positive test. Wow. Wow. And it turned the one-year program into a 16-month program for me. Okay. Okay. So it took 16 months. But, uh, you know, I proved I was staying clean, and I went through their program. And that's uh, after 16 months. Yeah, it was the end of January 13 until the beginning of June uh, 14, and that's when I graduated from the program. Nice. Outstanding. Mm -hmm. Outstanding. Well, um, Brian, here's the thing about two guys who like to talk. Uh, they go long, mm. and we have Thank gone you. long. So I do appreciate the story, though, and we are going to pick up with more uh, when you come back uh, in, in a, uh, a few shows from now. Uh, we also are going to be visiting um, – where you work now, and I don't want to, you know, blow anything uh, on that for John. So um, we'll we'll do that. But listeners, just know you're going to have more of this story and um, perhaps even better story uh, coming uh, with uh, the next couple of weeks. So, uh, Brian, thank you uh, for opening up and sharing with us. Uh, really appreciate it. Listen, folks, if you're dealing with something, uh, reach out and talk to someone. You can get us here at the show. It's bowtieguy at com. You can text me or call me personally at 760-608-1942. Uh, or you can just go on and type recovery help for whatever community you're looking uh, at and doing. Um, there are Celebrate Recoveries, there's 30,000 of them in America. Uh, so there might be one near you. There's AA, there's NA, there's, you know, you fill in the blank A. It's out there, so don't struggle alone. Someone is willing and waiting to, uh, to help you. And if you don't take that help, you're making it so someone can't do their 12 steps. So please let people um, reach out to you as you reach out to them and get help for whatever it is that you're dealing with. Brian, thank you so much. Listeners, thank you so much. And folks, we will see you next time. We mess it up. Thanks for checking out the Mess It Up podcast. If you've got any questions or feedback, please email info at messituppodcast.com. Don't forget to share with your friends, and we'll see you next time. We mess it up. Mess it up.